is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we bring you stories of all kinds here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And today, we bring you a story that all of us can relate to. It's entitled, Getting Through the Holidays Without Your Mother, by Liz Faria. We came across this story on Liz's blog, amothershipdown.com. Take it away, Liz. Before my mother died, but when she was very sick, I was dropping my son off at daycare. When we arrived, there was another little boy who had just been dropped off by his mom. He couldn't have been more than three years old, and he was wailing. I want my mom. I want my mom to come back. He was completely and totally inconsolable. His tears weren't the feigned kind put on for a show, protesting the drop-off, the kind which dry up 10 seconds after you walk out the door. No, this child was genuinely distressed. He wanted his mom very, very badly. I don't know if I've ever felt more in tune with another person's emotion, because at the time, I could already see what was coming. My mom had terminal cancer, and like this little boy, I could imagine a world where my mom wasn't coming back. I could clearly see myself in this child, sobbing for my own mom, wanting her to return to me and feeling very small in a world that suddenly felt like it was going to swallow me up. I understood this boy because, like him, on a primal level, I knew the panic of needing someone who was vanishing before my eyes. My mom has been gone for over three years now. I've gone through a lot of firsts without her. I've survived a time that did not seem at all survivable. I've had two more children, children who will never know what the holiday season feels like with my mom in it. They don't know how the house used to smell with my mom cooking her turkey or preparing her special holiday crescent rolls with sausage. They've never had her holiday punch with the rainbow sherbet. They haven't ever opened a stocking stuffed to the brim with treasures from grandma or seen how she could host an enormous number of guests in a way that made it seem so easy and joyful. They don't know how amazing she was at creating a sense of home. Every holiday season, my mom would host a craft fair out of our house with her best friend and next door neighbor. For three days, the entire first floor of my childhood home was transformed into a cozy holiday shop filled with crafts. The kitchen was set up with special treats and a delicious homemade punch. My sister and I loved the craft fair. It was a staple of our childhoods, quaint in a way you hardly see anymore. It was pure magic for us, and it was entirely representative of my mother and her unique ability to make everyone feel welcome and at home. When the holidays roll around, I feel the absence of my mother acutely. If you've lost a parent, I bet you do too. Sometimes the absence feels like a dullness. Things that were once bright and exciting, like putting up the Christmas decorations, feel muffled. I can't quite enjoy them the way I'd like to. Other times, the pain of missing my mother feels so intense that I can't look straight at it. It's like the sun that way. I can look around it, but if I stared straight at it, I would injure myself beyond repair. So I don't quite look. But I muddle through the way we all do with our longings. The way you have to do when a person you love deeply isn't there to fill their place at the holiday table. For these past three years, it's been a challenge to carry on with tradition. If a tradition is inextricably linked to a person who's gone, how can it ever feel right again? For me, it hasn't felt right. I don't know if that changes. Perhaps it does in time. To me, the holidays were my mom. She wasn't just a player in the holiday scene. She created the magic that made the holidays feel like home. My mother loved Christmas. 
She had a collection of Santas that she kept on display year-round at her house. I keep a little Santa hanging on the wall by our front door year-round, too. It makes me happy. It reminds me of her. I have a young family like many of you do. I have kids who need to enjoy their holidays and who will grow up with their own special memories. Memories that I'll have a huge part in creating. And so I try to enjoy myself for them and for me. This year, we're doing something different for Thanksgiving. My dad and sister and I will be going with our families to my aunt's house. There'll be a whole house full of aunts and uncles and cousins, and I'm looking forward to it. After dinner at my aunt's, we're going to take a trip with cousins from the other side of the family up to North Conway. This isn't how we've spent the holiday in the past, but it feels right this year. It's not tradition yet. Perhaps it's tradition in the making. It takes time to know. My aunt has just become a new foster mother, and her young foster son will be spending his first holiday with our family. I don't know what he's been through, but I can guess that, like me, he'll be feeling the acute pain of missing his mother this year. There are a lot of people who know this feeling. If you're missing your special person this holiday season, please know this. It's okay to feel dulled out. It's okay to feel an ache. It's okay to know that to look straight at the sun will be too much for you, and sometimes you just have to look away. You'll look up again when you're ready. And when you're ready, you can think about what kinds of traditions you want going forward. You can decide when the time is right to begin them. And if you feel like that little boy at the daycare crying for his mom, I understand you. I am you. A lot of us are. And that's Liz Ferrio and the piece Getting Through the Holidays Without Your Mother. And I lost mine on December 8, 2012. And it was a difficult Christmas because the holidays were my mom, too. That was her life. She had a little gift shop, but uh, that wasn't her life. That was after the kids all moved out and she was bored. So she adopted all these people, ran a gift shop, and people would come into the shop. And when they were down on their luck, my mom would give everything away. And at the end of the year, my dad would look at the books of that gift shop and it would lose money. And it lost money because my mom didn't open the gift shop to make money. And that was my mom's heart. She just, she wanted to have a family around and she'd lost her family. And they'd all moved, we'd all moved away. And we'd come back for, you know, a few days, a week at a time. But we knew that that broke mom's heart. And so for all of you out there who've lost a mother or father, um, Liz is right. You've got to make new traditions. You've got to start them anew for your kids. And mom will always be there for me. And Christmas is always a little difficult for me. But there's my daughter's shiny face, all the cousins and everyone else. And you just got to put on a good front and get, get to it. Just as mom would tell me. She'd always say, get to it. Get to it, damn it. So for all the moms out there, thanks for doing what you do. And send in your stories if you've lost a, a special a special parent or an absent parent. Uh, send your stories to OurAmericanNetwork.org. OurAmericanNetwork.org. Liz Furia's story, her story of her mom, all of our stories in some way or another. And to my mom, Christina, this is Our American Stories.
And we continue here on Our American Stories. And this next story, well, it's a This Day in History, which, as always, is brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can learn all of the things that matter in life, all of the things that are beautiful in life. Go to hillsdale.edu and sign up for their free and terrific online courses. That's hillsdale.edu. And on this day in history, on December 23rd, 1783, then-Commander-in-Chief of the Continental Army, George Washington, addressed the Continental Congress in Annapolis in order to resign his military commission. There may be no more important thing Washington did than this. And this is a day in history and a story you may not have known or heard before. And we're going to go to three terrific sources to tell this story from three very different points of view. First up will be Dr. Larry Arn the president of Hillsdale College, and he'll give an historian's view and an academic view. Next will be Lieutenant Colonel Sean Scully, and he's the American History Division Chief at West Point, giving a soldier's take. And last but not least, David McCullough, another great historian and storyteller. First up, Dr. Larry Arn, and we start at the beginning of things when Washington commenced his commission. Here's a bit of history and a bit of context. He was appointed commander-in-chief of the American forces in the American Revolutionary War. Those forces hardly existed at the time he was appointed, which was June 19, 1775, and the war would go till 1783, so that's an eight-year war. That's how long that thing went on. It was exhausting, tiresome, and awful. Uh, And there wasn't really much of an army There also wasn't really anybody in the American forces nor anybody to be a candidate in the American forces who had ever moved large bodies of troops around before. And the British were, of course, very good at that. And that showed in the early battles. Uh, Washington was chosen on the nomination of John Adams and his cousin Sam Adams. And they, especially John, had a very shrewd idea about that. Uh, John Hancock also from Massachusetts, as was as were the Adams, where uh, he was interested in the job, but uh, uh, he was from Massachusetts, as and that's where all the trouble had been, or almost all of it. Also, up in New York, there had been trouble, and you know the Boston Tea Party and the uh, and the Boston Massacre, where some British troops uh, fired on and killed some Americans in a demonstration. Uh, Those had happened in Boston. And Virginia, uh, from which George Washington comes, is down to the south and had been relatively calm. And the Adams and many other people realized we have to unite the colonies in order to have any chance of defeating the British. And so let's pick a commander from Virginia, a very distinguished Virginian. Uh, George Washington was a farmer. He... uh, had, uh, was connected to the Fairfax family. There's Fairfax County in Virginia now. And uh, and he was very well-to-do. He was an excellent farmer, and he loved to farm. He was an innovative farmer. He invented a way to uh, drive horses around in a circle in a barn and uh, and uh, winnow the grain, separate the wheat from the chaff, and then the the good parts would uh, filter down to a, to a lower floor. He did lots of things like that. And he loved to have a day where he got on his horse and he rode all over the place, 
looking at his land and figuring out how better to farm it. Uh, he, uh, he was a slaveholder, and uh, he farmed with slave labor and free labor all his life, and he liberated all his slaves on his, uh, in his will, so they were all set free. Uh, he was known to treat them well. Um, he uh, had that country life. In fact, he died uh, when, he, when he died. He died because he had a long day in the cold and the drizzle when he was out riding his horse and he got a bad cough and it eventually killed him. They didn't know how to treat things like that back then. And so who was this guy, George Washington? Let's hear more about his background and about the man himself. So here's this man, and he's got some military experience. And the military experience, a lot of it is not very successful. That is to say, he was at Fort Necessity in Pennsylvania when the uh, Seven Years' War, or the French and Indian War, it was called, in the United States, or in America, not the United States, uh, opened. He was, in, he was at the place where that big battle opened, and that battle was an episode in the long series of wars between France and England that very much affected North America in this particular dispensation of that old, long conflict. Go on until the defeat of Napoleon. So Washington was there, and he was a junior officer, and he fought bravely. Uh, he wrote to a friend, I heard the bullets whistle, and there is something charming in the sound. It reminds someone of Winston Churchill, who wrote to his mother the first time he was in a battle. He was in very many, too. Uh, Nothing so exhilarating as to be fired upon without effect. Uh, George Washington looked like an incredibly distinguished man. He was tall. uh, He was very handsome. Uh, Abigail Adams wrote to her husband after she first met him, I had heard that he was handsome, but it was not prepared for that. He was a very reserved man, and uh, many people close to him uh, reported he was he was fun. He liked to ha- have dinner, and he liked to drink, not too much. Uh, he liked to talk, but also he was uh, he had a very strong sense of comportment. Uh, when he was a kid, he wrote 112 rules of civil behavior, and the last one, and it's things like don't pick your teeth, and <laughs> and. Uh, and the last one is really beautiful. Labor to keep in your uh, alive in your breast the celestial fire known as conscience. So he was uh, a very well-directed, serious man. Here's Dr. Larry Arn again, president of Hillsdale College, talking about George Washington's talents and the sacrifices he made for his country. He had a grand strategic sense, and that sense was this is a big old country, and they're going to have a hard time subduing it. And so one of his aims was to preserve his army, and he did manage to do that. And it wasn't easy to keep them together, for one thing, because the Congress wasn't paying them. And it wasn't paying them because it didn't have any money, and it didn't have any money because the states wouldn't give it any money, although they would promise to. So most of Washington's career in the Revolutionary War was a tremendous mess. And, you know, he lived with the troops— he was away from home for years and years, and he loved his home. He was altogether, he was away from his home for close to nine years, and he missed it, and he wrote lots of letters about it, and, his, and he suffered with the troops. And sometimes his wife, Martha, 
would uh, come and suffer with the troops, for example, at Valley Forge. And uh, he kept it together, and he kept his army in being, and he made it very hard for the British to win because they really had to conquer the land. And here's Dr. Larry Arn reading Washington's final words as a general to the Continental Congress in Annapolis on this day in history. Happy in the confirmation of our independence and sovereignty, and pleased with the opportunity afforded the United States of becoming a respectable nation, I resign with satisfaction the appointment I accepted with diffidence, a diffidence in my abilities to accomplish so arduous a task, which, however, was superseded by a confidence in the rectitude of our cause, the support of the supreme power of the Union, and the patronage of heaven. It is an indispensable duty to close this last act of my official life by commending the interest of our dearest country to the protection of Almighty God. Having finished the work assigned to me, I retire from the great theater of action and bidding an affectionate farewell to this august body under whose orders I have so long acted, I here offer my commission and take my leave of all the employments of public life. What a way to end, you know, which has got to be one of the most consequential wars in all of human history. It established the United States of America, and he was the man who commanded it, and everyone knew it was his strategy that had won, and everyone knew that he, it was his determination and moral force that had kept an army in being able to fight through many defeats and through impoverishment and lack of supply. And so he was the greatest man in the world. And you've been listening to Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. And my goodness, what a way to end indeed. And what words, what beautiful words, short and beautiful. And nine years away from home, unimaginable, living such a good life. And all those soldiers fighting without pay, all those losses. And as Dr. Arn said, he kept it together. No small feat. When we continue our special celebration, this day in history in 1783, General Washington addresses the Continental Congress and resigns his military commission here on Our American Story. And we continue here on Our American Stories. On this day in history in 1783, George Washington resigned his commission before the Continental Congress in Annapolis. And that's Annapolis, Maryland. It was our capital for a short time. And now we turn to Lieutenant Colonel Sean Scully for a soldier's take on the war. And he's the Academy Professor in American History and Division Chief at West Point. Before Washington went to Annapolis... He had a little business to do in New York, and so he meandered down to the lower part of Manhattan where the war had started to meet the troops and to thank them and to say goodbye to them. Here's Lieutenant Colonel Scully talking about that moment between the soldiers and the general. 
George Washington is riding at the head of a cavalry unit that's acting as his honor guard. He is riding down to the southern tip of Manhattan to a place called France's Tavern on Pearl Street. It's still there today. And he's going to say goodbye. He's going to give a final toast, shake the hands of the most important men in his life for the last eight years, men that he has shed blood with, that he has cried with, that he has won a revolution with, and then he's going to set sail for Philadelphia. The dinner is said to have been a very sad affair. Washington apparently did not have much of an appetite. At the end of the meal, it was said that Washington got choked up, um, said that it would be too difficult for him to come to each one of the officers and shake their hands, but that he would be obliged if they would come and shake his. Knox, Henry Knox, was the first to do so, uh, gave him a hug, and both men wept. Scully went on to talk to us about how this was an unprecedented move by a general. The generals in the past, when they won a war, my goodness, they took power. They took control. Caesar, think of Caesar. But he copied Cincinnatus instead, this Roman historical figure that he studied. And this thing about soldiers that we all have to understand, they know history. They study battles all the way back to the Greeks and the Romans. They study and they study. Here's Scully on why he thinks, as a soldier and a trainer of soldiers, that this was such an important act, the surrender, the resignation of a commission. It's this final action by him that perhaps makes him the most respected general in American history, at least for me. Throughout the Revolution, George Washington understood that he was setting a precedence every time he acted. Almost everything he did was the first thing any American had ever done in that position. Most significantly, he always viewed himself as a servant of the Continental Congress. He never attempted to usurp their power, and he realized that for the revolution to be true to its values, its top military commander had to remain below those people elected to represent the American cause. It is this commitment to the subjugation of the military to the civilian government that is Washington's greatest legacy, at least for military officers like myself. It is his example that we follow every day. And it is the example that generals throughout American history have followed. Um, George C. Marshall, Dwight Eisenhower, Ulysses S. Grant, all of the greatest generals in American history have been those who have been a little humble, have been willing to listen to the presidents that have been elected over them and have willingly given up the uniform when their time is done. And again, that was Lieutenant Colonel Sean Scully. And he, well, he's the history guy over at West Point. And now we turn for some final thoughts to the great David McCullough. 
And here he is giving just a general overview of how lucky and grateful we should be that a man like this led us and was really our first real leader. It didn't just come to us out of the sky. It just, these advantages we have, this system of life and government and our freedoms didn't just happen. Somebody had to work hard and suffer, and many of them, of course, died to make it happen. And the doubters were all around. It wasn't as if everybody was, oh, this is a wonderful thing, let's, let's go out and fight for it. A fraction of the country was for it. A fraction of the country was willing to serve in the army. I think maybe if there's a message in Washington's life, it's that, it's that willingness to serve and not just talk about what you're going to do, but to act. It takes both. And uh, absolute selfless service to the country in, as they said, war and peace for no pay, nothing in it for him. And then when he gets the ultimate power, as almost nobody could imagine, he gave it up, willingly, of his own choice. And uh, this was after the war was over and he'd won. He was the conquering general. He was the hero. He could have been anything he wanted, czar, king, potentate, whatever. He could have made the presidency into a totally different kind of office. But he relinquished power. He said, no, I'm going back to Mount Vernon. And when George III heard that he might, he, George Washington, might do that, he said, if he does that, he will be the greatest man in the world. And uh, because nobody had done that before. This was the, the ultimate uh, uh, ideal of Cincinnatus, you know, that uh, you, the, the conquering general, the conquering hero returns to the plow. The conquering hero returns to the plow. And it's exactly what George Washington did. Here's McCullough, again, in general, talking about the importance of Washington and why we should all know this story and so many more stories about this, immor- this remarkable man. His picture really should be, along with Abraham Lincoln, back in every schoolroom, as it used to be. And uh, this isn't ancestor worship, or this isn't... Uh, uh, old-fashioned um, history. This is the, this is reality. This is the truth. And uh, to be indifferent to people like Washington, to be uninterested in people like Washington, is really a form, in part, of ingratitude. We ought to be down on our knees every day, thanking God that we are part of this country. And we ought to know about the people who made it possible and thank them, in effect, by showing interest in them and their world, their time. So true. And then some final and closing thoughts from David McCullough. Anytime we get down and we think, oh, we're living in such a dangerous, uh, difficult, uncertain time, oh, woe is us, uh, excuse me, it's, we've been through far worse than we're going through now, uh, with far greater adversity, far more imminent danger. We have suffered more. We have known uh, darker clouds on the horizon by far than we do now. And we've come through it. And we will again. And let's draw from that example, draw strength from, strength from history. History is a source of strength and should be. And Washington, of course, individually as a human being and as a, as a figure in history is one of the 
protagonists of our story is a is a is a particularly uh, um, striking example of history as a source of strength. And words so true spoken by David McCullough on this day in history, Washington resigned his commission in 1783. This is what the painter John Trumbull had to say. "'Tis a conduct so novel, so inconceivable to people who, far from giving up powers they possess, are willing to convulse, are willing to convulse the empire to acquire more. George Washington's story, his resignation of his commission, one of the great selfless acts in not only American history, but world history. That story featured here on Our American Stories, and a special thanks to Hillsdale College. This is Our American Stories, and in this next story, we're going to take a look back at one of the best and weirdest stand-ups to ever hold a mic. And by the way, we've done a lot on comedians. We were just talking about it, and Carol Burnett, Lucille Ball, George Carlin, Gary Shandling, Robin Williams, Steve Martins was just terrific. Real insights into the life of a stand-up. Joan Rivers, what a life. Johnny Carson, just terrific stuff there. And... My personal favorite, Don Rickles, whose act would be against the law today. And we did an hour on his life and what a life it was. And now, Mitch Hedberg. He was an old-fashioned one-line spitter like Henny Youngman and an observer of the foibles of everyday life like Jerry Seinfeld. But the simplicity of his format obscured the qualities of his work that made him a legend. Quote, every book is a children's book if the kid can read. It's just one good example of classic Edberg writing. Mitch never tried to speak about issues as most comics do. Instead, he was telling jokes about, well, ducks. Here's Mitch's story. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm extremely proud to present Mitch Hedberg. Mitch Hedberg was one of the greatest comedians of all time. He might not be a household name like George Carlin or Louis C.K., but he'll always be remembered for his signature style and unconventional offbeat delivery. Yeah, I got, I got to write these jokes. So uh, I sit at the hotel at night, I think of something that's funny, then I go get a pen and I write it down. Or if the pen's too far away, I have to convince myself that what I thought of ain't funny. <laughs> his comedy typically featured short, sometimes one-line jokes, mixed with absurd elements and non-sequiturs. I've always wanted to have a suitcase handcuffed to my wrist. All right. My friend asked me if I wanted a frozen banana. I said no, but I want a regular banana later, so yeah. I'm out to dinner with a group of friends and someone offers to pay for the check. I immediately reach for my wallet because inside is a note that says, say thanks. <laughs> I used to do drugs, I still do, but I used to too. Mitch displayed a visible delight in being on stage, and he embodied a warmth that would draw his audience into his world. 
I'm against picketing, but I don't know how to show it. He earned a cult following and the admiration of his fellow comics. I order the club sandwich all the time, and I'm not even a member, man. I don't know how I get away with it. I like my sandwiches with three pieces of bread. So do I. Well, let's form a club. Okay, but we need some more stipulations. Yes, we do. Instead of the cutting the sandwich once, let's cut it again. Hell yeah, four triangles. We'll position them into a circle. And in the middle, we will dump chips. Or potato salad. Cool. I can deal with that. Let me ask you a question. How you feel about frilly toothpicks? I'm for them. Well, this club is formed then. I like to take a toothpick and throw it in the forest and say, you're home. Born in St. Paul, Minnesota, Hedberg moved out when he turned 18 to pursue his dream of being a stand-up comic. You know, when it comes to racism, people say, I don't care if they're black, white, purple, or green. Oh, hold on now. Purple or green? You gotta draw the line somewhere. (laughs) To hell with purple people. (laughs) Unless they're suffocating. (laughs) Then help them. He lived out of his car and honed his routine and built his reputation playing comedy clubs across the country throughout the 1990s. Here's fellow comedians Shard Hogan, Doug Stanhope, Dave Attell, and Chuck Savage. The unique thing about Mitch is that he didn't do a lot of uh, typical setup type, you know, joke jokes. It was just so much different than anything anyone was doing or is doing today. Here was a guy standing on stage with his eyes closed, just kind of doing this, you know, uh, thoughts, basically, that were like hilarious and so out there. And as a comic, you kind of always know where the joke's going, like, you know, with his stuff, it was always, it blew me away. A good comic says funny things, and a great comic says things funny. And that's what Mitch did, he said things funny. When someone tries to hand me out a flyer, it's kind of like they're saying, here, you throw this away. It's weird to hear that a guy who made his living performing in front of people was terrified of doing so. But Mitch Hedberg had severe stage fright. And so the prototypical Hedberg performance involved dark sunglasses, long hair draped over his eyes, and set long staring contests with the floor. And finally, Mitch would bookend this list by completely closing his eyes to keep the crowd at an even safer distance. You know on TV, when they have a fishing show on TV, they catch the fish, but they let it go. They don't want to eat the fish, but they do want to make it late for something. (laughs) Where were you? I got caught. Liar, let me see the inside of your lip. Every comedian messes up a joke on occasion, but they usually ignore their flubs. Not Hedberg. He tended to ruminate on his failed jokes, criticizing them on stage at a level few comedians could ever get away with. Dogs are forever in the push-up position. That joke. That joke. That joke is dumb, I'm aware of that. <laughs> Ad- uh, Ad- Advil has a candy coating, it's delicious. 
And it says right on the bottle, do not have more than two. Well, then do not put a candy coating around it. For I cannot help myself. Let me have 10 Advil. Do you got a, I got a sweet tooth. <laughs> I think I screwed part of that joke up. I, I apologize about that. Deadspin likened it to him breaking the fourth wall. In an odd way, it made him even more endearing and relatable to his fans. I find that Duck's opinion of me is very much influenced over whether or not I have bread. You know that, Petra's farm bread, that stuff is fancy, man. It's wrapped twice. You open it, and it still ain't open. That's why I don't buy it. I don't need another step between me and toast. Hedberg's innovative onstage persona brought him to the doorstep of fame, and he soon earned top billing. At the 1998 Montreal Comedy Festival, Mitch wowed the crowd. I got a king-sized bed. I don't know any kings, but if one came over, I guess he'd be comfortable. <laughs> oh, you're a king, you say. Well, you won't believe what I have in store for you. It's to your exact specifications. When I was a boy, I laid in my twin-sized bed and wondered where my brother was. All right. I had a cold sore. I put some Carmex on it. Carmex is supposed to heal cold sores. I don't know if it does, but it will make them shiny and more noticeable. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Please welcome Mitch Hedberg. Mitch! As an encore, Mitch booked the ultimate stand-up gig, a spot on The Late Show with David Letterman. I got a V-neck shirt on, man. I like V-necks, you know? And I hate turtlenecks, man. A turtleneck is like being strangled by a really weak guy. <laughs> All day. This is so unusual to hear so much applause. I think you're trying to trick me and make me think I'm done. Letterman wanted him back right away. A rare request for stand-up comics. By the end of 1998, Mitch landed a half-million-dollar TV deal with Fox and starred in his own special for Comedy Central. He was even dubbed the next Seinfeld by Time magazine. This shirt is dry clean only, which means it's dirty. By the early 2000s, Mitch was performing 300 shows a year, and sometimes three in a night. Hedberg never passed on a job, even at the peak of his fame, because he had been rejected so many times in his career that he felt if he didn't say yes, he might not be given the opportunity to perform again. I went to a... I went to a pizzeria, I ordered a slice of pizza. The dude gave me the smallest slice possible. If the pizza was a pie chart for what people would do if they found a million dollars, this dude gave me the donate to charity slice. <laughs> I would like to exchange this for the keep it. Ultimately, Mitch's drive to succeed and his drug use, most notably heroin, took him over the edge. This morning, we've learned a popular comic from St. Paul has passed away. Mitch Hedberg died in a hotel room in New Jersey on Wednesday. Hedberg died of a massive heart attack caused by drug abuse on March 29, 2005. Mitch was not the next Seinfeld, but he never needed to be. 
He was Mitch Hedberg. As a comedian, you have to start the show strong and you have to end the show strong. Those are the two key elements. You can't be like pancakes, all exciting at first, but then by the end, you're sick of them. <laughs> I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your story. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And they're some of our favorites. And our next story comes from a Colorado listener. Let's take a listen. My name is Patty Kingsbaker, and I grew up in Miami. My dad was the boxing coach for the University of Miami. and uh, But they discontinued boxing in 1954, I believe. But at the time, I mean, he had two jobs. He worked for the Coral Gables Fire Department, and he was the boxing coach for the University of Miami. So when they discontinued boxing, he started refereeing. And uh, so as when I was growing up, I'm not sure how old I was when he started taking me to the fights, but I feel like I was at least seven. So every Friday night, I was over on Miami Beach with my dad and going to the fights. So I grew up like knowing all the boxers and in growing up in that world. I mean, I just loved boxing. So we found out that the Johansson Patterson heavyweight championship fight was going to be in Miami. And of course, you know, I was like, my dad's going to referee, you know, but they really, they don't find out who's going to referee a fight until like five minutes before the fight. They come over and get tagged you know, to do it. So long story short, my dad, I, there was one other referee that I knew was probably had enough experience or that it was between my dad and this other guy. Well, and his name was Cy Godfrey. And my dad was Billy Regan. And um, but Cy refereed a 10 rounder right before the main event. And so I knew I knew that my dad was so I hit it you know, I just was headed down towards to see my dad, you know, to go, yeah, you're going to get this fight. And I was behind the bleachers, but they were holding the crowd back. And all of a sudden, I looked up and like 10 feet in front of me is Frank Sinatra. And he's standing there with that, you know, he had his finger on his coat over his shoulder. He had the hat on and I, I was stopped in my tracks. I was like, oh, my God, that's Frank Sinatra. So I never made it down ringside to talk to my dad before the fight. But he did, in fact, referee the fight. And it was when Patterson regained the title from Johansson. 
And so when I found my dad after the fight, of course, the first thing I said to him wasn't, you got to referee the fight. It was like, Daddy, I saw Frank Sinatra, you know. So anyway, the story had kind of circulated through the fighters and Chris Dundee, who was the promoter at the time. And, you know, everybody gave me a hard time for not getting his autograph. And I was like, I was just scared. I didn't know what to do. So it was a few months later, I think, and I was at the fights with my dad. And Chris Dundee came up to me and he goes, all right, Frank's coming in tonight. And he's going to come in through that door over there, all right, at 9 o'clock. So you keep your eyes peeled and you go get your autograph this time. So sure enough. At 9 o'clock, that door opened, and in comes Frank. And I'm ready. And so I go hauling over there. They're taking him to a seat. But the thing was, is Chris forgot to tell security to let me through. So they're not letting me through. And again, can't get his autograph. So um, I was just so disappointed because I felt like I had a clear path that night. Anyway, I went home, and I ended up writing him a letter And he was uh, performing over at the Fountain Blue at the time. And I wrote him a letter and I explained everything. I explained that my dad had refereed the championship fight, that I had been standing 10 feet, you know, with a clear path to him, but was scared. And that Chris had told me he was coming in the other night. And that, you know, I had my paper and pen ready, but then security wouldn't let me through. And I said, so now it looks like I'm never going to get your autograph. You know, if you could just send it to me that I would really appreciate it. So, and I mailed the letter off to Frank Sinatra at the Fountain Blue Hotel. So, it was a few days later, maybe, I I don't know, but my dad called me chuckling, and he said, I got the strangest phone call today, and he was working at the fire station at the time, and he said, this guy calls me, and he goes, are you the Billy Regan that refereed the Hanson Patterson fight? And he said, yeah. He said, oh, God, thank God. Frank's been driving us nuts. Your daughter wrote him a letter. Somebody threw away the envelope. He doesn't have an address, and he wants to send her a picture. So my dad gave him the address, and I have my autographed picture from Frank Sinatra from that. And you've been listening to Patty Kingsbaker. And she has another story about Elvis Presley. And look, if you've got stories like it, send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Brushes with greatness or a celebrity or a star you really love or care about. Uh, Tell us those stories. Again, send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. And I could just picture it. I mean, and Frank was always working on that image no matter where he walked. That coat was over his back just like on so many of his records and that hat, that signature hat was always there. And there was a day when he played little places like the Fountain Blue. By the way, that hotel is still there, and it still has top-line entertainment. And if you want to get a taste of the old Miami, it's still there. And South Beach is still a great place to go and, and have some fun, listen to some great music, and enjoy the sun. Patty Kingsbaker's story, her story of her encounter, well, her almost encounter with Frank Sinatra, here on Our American Stories. And now it's time for Lindsay Marie and the Why Minutes. Why did you buy an Amtrak ticket? If you're like most people, you're probably thinking, what are you talking about? I've never ridden the Amtrak. I know I sure as heck haven't. But what if I told you, no, you really did buy a ticket. Someone swiped your card and charged it on your behalf. One charge is easy to miss, but these guys have been swiping your card since the 70s. Okay, okay, okay. Before you totally freak out, it's not your fault. 
it didn't show up on your statement. It showed up on your tax bill. You see, in 1970, our government decided to get in the business of business, and they created this Amtrak thing. Congress forces Amtrak to run routes that no one goes on. And they can't even figure out how to turn a profit on a $9.50 cheeseburger. They've been losing over a billion a year. For most businesses, that would mean they'd be bankrupt. But for Amtrak, the government is all too happy to help make us subsidize them. The Why Minutes, because why matters. continue with our American stories and we love to tell stories about businesses here on our show because without businesses and particularly small businesses well where do people work and where do local governments get their money to pay for people like teachers and everybody else and today we have the story of Madam C.J. Walker and many believe she was the first self-made female millionaire she also happens to be an African-American woman and she was certainly the pioneer of the modern hair care industry. Today we have Alelia Bundles telling us the story. She was the first child in her family born free in December of 1867. They lived in an area that had been devastated by the Civil War. Everything, the plantations had been burned down, and now the formerly enslaved people were struggling to just live a life, and they had very little money there at the end of every season. They owed money to the plantation owners who had been their former slave owners. Madam C.J. Walker is my great-great-grandmother, and I grew up in a household where both of my parents were in the hair care business. My mother was vice president of the Madam C.J. Walker Manufacturing Company, which had been founded in 1906 by her great-grandmother, Madam C.J. Walker. So that was really my first introduction to the story of these amazing women in my family. And then years later, I really began to understand the importance and the impact of Madam C.J. Walker. But she started life as Sarah Breedlove on the same plantation in Delta, Louisiana, where her parents had been enslaved. And Sarah Breedlove, uh, as the young child in her family, it was, didn't have much opportunity for education. And then when she was seven years old, both of her parents died. She uh, had to move in with her older sister, Luvenia, and Luvenia was married to a man who was so cruel, as Sarah later said, that she, uh, she got married at 14 to get a home of her own. She married a man named Moses McWilliams. Very little is known about her first husband, Moses McWilliams, but they had one daughter named Alelia when Sarah was 17, and when Sarah was 20, Moses died. So now Sarah Breedlove Mac Williams was a widow. 
she knew she wasn't going to move back in with her sister and brother-in-law, so she moved up the Mississippi River to St. Louis, where her older brothers had moved about a decade earlier uh, as part of a, an exodus. So the, sort of the, we hear about caravans now with people from Central America in the 1870s and 1880s. African-Americans, formerly enslaved people, just left Louisiana and Mississippi because the conditions were so horrible. There was so much racial violence and they, her brothers had moved to St. Louis to escape that treatment. So she joined her brothers in St. Louis. They had become barbers and they were doing relatively well. They had a barbershop very near St. Paul African Methodist Episcopal Church. And Sarah joined the church. It was really the women of the church who began to give her a vision of herself as something other than an illiterate washerwoman. And that is when her life began to change. Sarah Breedlove arrived in St. Louis in around 1888. And now she was Sarah Breedlove McWilliams with a little girl who was about two years old. She had had very little formal education. There weren't schools for black children in Louisiana, even though her family minister, Curtis Pollard, had been a black state senator during Reconstruction when African-Americans had gained a great deal of political power. That power was taken away from them by the Ku Klux Klan so that by the time Sarah was old enough to go to school, there were no schools for black children. So now she's in St. Louis. She knows how to pick cotton, she knows how to wash clothes, she knows how to do domestic work, and she's struggling to raise her daughter. And life is just very difficult, even though her brothers are trying to help her and the women of the church are trying to help her, she doesn't really have enough money to make ends meet. But the women of the church really encourage her to make sure that her daughter is educated. So during the week, she is having to work away from home, having to live in as a domestic. She leaves her daughter at what was called the Colored Orphans Home. There were a number of black women who had organized because they knew there were families who were struggling. There was no daycare in the way that we think about it now. So her daughter Lelia spent uh, part of the week at the Collard Orphans Home. She went to kindergarten with the other children from the school. And then on the weekends or whenever Sarah could be with her, she helped to raise her daughter. They went to church every Sunday at St. Paul AME Church. And even though Sarah was struggling, she had a good enough voice that she was in the choir. Being in the choir allowed her to meet some of the more middle-class women, to travel around the city when the choir performed. And so she was being exposed to a way of life that made her aspire to something better. So time went on, and in 1894, a couple of her brothers had died, and so now her support system, her emotional and financial support system was really crumbling. And she met a man named John Davis. She married John Davis. She thought that that would be helpful to her, that she would be helpful in raising her daughter. And, and that turned out to be a disaster. So they ended up splitting up. But around this time, she was under so much stress and she was having so many problems uh, that she her hair began to fall out. And she said, I was so ashamed of my frightful appearance that I prayed to the Lord for a solution. And one night in a dream, a big African man appeared and he told me what to mix up for my uh, formula. And some of the ingredients came from Africa. I sent for them, I mixed them together. I applied them to my scalp and my hair began to grow back faster than it had ever fallen out. 
And so I think there is that is part of the truth. Um, it's also true that uh, that she sold products for a while for a woman who became her competitor, a woman named Annie Malone. It's also true that she worked for a while as a cook for after she moved to Denver for a man named E.L. Schultz, who owned the largest pharmacy west of the Mississippi River. And he was well aware of products that were already on the market, like Cuticura and formulas that pharmacists had been using and the medical profession had been using really for hundreds of years. A basic formula that was uh, cleaning your hair more often with a shampoo and then an ointment that contained sulfur. And sulfur is a centuries old remedy for healing dandruff and scalp infections. So that was really the combination of Sarah's dreams, Sarah selling other products, other products already being on the market and coming up with her own formula. But I think one thing that is really important for us to understand in you know this era, in the 21st century, is that in 1906, when Sarah Breedlove McWilliams, who was to become Madame Walker, started her company and developed her formula, most Americans didn't have indoor plumbing. And that meant people didn't bathe very often. <laughs> which we don't like to think about, but, you know, people would have to go outside and pump wet, pump water at the well by hand, put it in a bucket, heat it on the, a wood stove or on an open fire, get the water hot enough to fill a big, large tin tub and take a bath. And that might happen once a week. And everybody in the family might use the same bath water. So it's really gross. But as you can see, this would not, you know, bathing was not the sort of luxury thing that we think about now. So most people didn't have indoor plumbing. They didn't bathe very often. They washed their hair even less often. And Sarah was one of those women. And there were many women like her because they weren't washing their hair very often. They had really horrible scalp infections. And as a result, they were going bald. So that was really Sarah's uh, real, real problem, is that she was going bald and she wanted to figure out a way to have healthier hair. She moved to Denver in uh, 1905, and her good friend, Charles Joseph Walker, whom she had met in St. Louis, who was a newspaper man, moved to Denver. And they got married in January of 1906. And she began to take out ads in the newspaper. All of a sudden, instead of being Sarah McWilliams in her ads in the black newspaper in Denver, now she was Mrs. C.J. Walker. And then in April of 1906, she began to call herself Madam C.J. Walker. And you can think, well, that's a bit of an affectation. Uh, but it was really a nod to the fact that Paris... Uh, where people were called Madam rather than Mrs. Paris was the center of fashion and beauty culture. And she, like women who were her contemporaries, Elizabeth Arden, Helena Rubinstein, they all called themselves Madam. So it was really kind of a business honorific as well as a way to, uh, to have some respect and some dignity. And when we come back, we'll continue with the remarkable story of Madam C.J. Walker, as told beautifully by her great-great-granddaughter, Alelia Bundles. More on The Walker's Story after these messages.
And we continue with the story of Madam C.J. Walker here on Our American Stories. And she's the woman who started the modern hair care industry. Her great-great-granddaughter, Alelia Bundles, has been telling us her story. And we pick up where we last left off. You know, so she begins to sell her products. You know, her hair is now growing longer. And other women who had scalp infections like she did are wondering, Sarah, what have you done? How come your hair is growing? And she and her new husband traveled around Colorado to the various mining towns, to Trinidad, to Pueblo, to Colorado Springs. And even though Colorado had a really small black population and that was her target audience, there were um, you know, black residents in all of these towns because people had gone just like other Americans to try to be part of the gold rush, to try to be part of the silver rush, to do the mining in Colorado. So Sarah was selling her products and, you know, traveling around. And it really became clear to her that she could only grow her market so much in a state where there were very few black residents. So she and Charles Joseph Walker began to travel around the southwestern part of the United States in the south. They went to Texas, to Kansas, to Oklahoma, Mississippi, Louisiana. So every town she would go to, she would demonstrate the products. She would find a woman in town who seemed to have a scalp infection in that she would hire a room in a church and get the water heated and wash the woman's hair and then show just what her products could do. And then she was always very good about picking out the women who seemed to have the most personality and who might be leaders in their church, who might be with their missionary society or with their choir. She had a really great knack for finding women who were leaders. And she would pick that woman woman to be her sales agent. So that when she left the town, she would leave a supply of products with that person and then she would stay in touch. And then as the woman began to develop a customer base, she would order more products from Sarah. She had asked her daughter to move to Denver so that she would have somebody who was mixing up the products as she and her husband were traveling around. So they continued for about a year and a half, um, going to as many towns as possible. She was very smart about advertising. She'd take out a little ad in whatever black newspaper for the town where she was going the next week so that she would have a crowd. She knew how to develop a crowd and how to create buzz. So after about a year and a half, she needed to find a new base. And she had been along the East Coast by now, and she decided to settle in Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh seemed, she must have met somebody there. She always connected with the African Methodist Episcopal Church congregation. She would find a friend who would let her stay. You know, somebody would write a letter and she would be able to stay with the minister or the doctor, black doctors, because most hotels were not open to, um, you know, black clientele at that point because of the horrible Jim Crow segregation. But she settled in Pittsburgh and she had her daughter come from Denver to Pittsburgh. Now she and her husband, Charles Joseph Walker, and her daughter are living there. They open the first beauty school called Lelia College, which she named after her daughter. And then they began to train even more women. She continued traveling in Pennsylvania and Ohio. And in 1909, she visited Indianapolis. And she was really looking for a new base. And she was very impressed with Indianapolis. When she got there, 
she noticed that there was a very thriving black business community. There were three black newspapers, including uh, one that was a nationally distributed newspaper called the Indianapolis Freeman. So this Indianapolis Freeman was uh, something Madam Walker immediately recognized as a great place to advertise. She took out an ad and she used before and after photographs. The before picture she put in the center and her hair was very short and this was when her hair had been falling out. And then on either side in a sort of trio of pictures, she had a front view and a side view and her hair was long and her hair was down to the middle of her back and very healthy. And it was kind of like a Jenny Craig commercial. I mean, you could really see the, you know, the impact that her products really worked. And in that, uh, in this ad, she took the, a, a third of the page from top to bottom, placed the pictures at the top, and then the ad included letters that were testimonials from women who both were her customers and women who were her sales agents. And she, one woman wrote her a letter and she said, before I started using Madam Walker's wonderful hair grower, my hair was an eighth of an inch long, and now my hair is down my back. And I have been able to throw my wig away. So this was real, you know, you know, real endorsement uh, that said the products worked. But there were also letters from women who had become her sales agents. And one woman said, you have made it possible for a black woman to make more money in a day selling your products than she could in a month working in somebody's kitchen. This was huge because there was so much discrimination against, you know, women in general working outside the home, but especially women of color, that the only jobs that they could be hired for were maids and cooks and laundresses and sharecroppers. So for a woman to be able to make her own money, her own independent money, meant she didn't have to go work in somebody else's house, live in somebody else's house and leave her children at home. She could have her own business in her house, uh, doing hair, or selling products. And so these, so Madam Walker always was pushing not just the products and you can feel beautiful at a time when very few people were telling black women they were beautiful. She always pushed financial and economic independence and empowerment. So these ads were very powerful. Added to that, one of the reasons she had picked Indianapolis is because it was a transportation hub. It was called the Crossroads of America, and that was because of all of the trains that went through Indianapolis every day. At that point in 1910, it was near the center of population in America. The Western United States was still pretty sparsely populated. California was not the powerhouse that we think of it now with a large population. So Indiana really had quite a bit of a train traffic. And because the trains were going through town, that meant that it was a great place for her to do business with her mail order business. It also meant that the black men who worked on the trains, the Pullman porters, who were traveling from coast to coast, could take papers, copies of the Indianapolis Freeman, and sell those papers as they traveled around. So Madam Walker placed her ad in the Indianapolis Freeman, knowing that these black Pullman porters would pick up stacks of those papers as they came through town. And if they were going to San Francisco or Boston or Detroit or Atlanta or New York or Chicago, her ads were going to be seen by people. She really was a marketing uh, and distribution genius. 
By training thousands of women to be her sales agents, she developed a workforce, an army of women who were selling her products. And when we come back, we'll continue with the story of Madam C.J. Walker. And again, it's being told so beautifully by her great-great-granddaughter, Alelia Bundles. And what's most striking is it's almost a history lesson of a sort, too. And that's what we try to do here with so many of our stories. And we're looking for your stories, too. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And we were talking, and this could easily be one of our American Dreamers stories, too. In fact, we should make it so. Because free enterprise has been the way out for so many people in this great country. And a way forward, and a way to improve, well, improve our own lives, our own families' lives. So when we come back, we'll continue with the story of Madam C.J. Walker, the first self-made female millionaire, her story, and in a way, her great-great-granddaughter's story, too, because you can tell here that the great-great-granddaughter has just tremendous affection for carrying on this remarkable family story. Madam C.J. Walker's story continues here on Our American Stories. to hear the last segment of the story of Madam C.J. Walker, the pioneer of the women's hair care industry and the first woman to become a self-made millionaire in this country. Her success came from her great product and her amazing ability to advertise and market. Let's get back to the story. She traveled most of the year going from town to town doing lectures one of the things that I, one, one story I remember from her secretary, she had a secretary who came to work for her in 1914 when she was still a teenager. And when I was growing up and really starting to do my research, Violet Reynolds was still working for the Walker Company. One story that her, her secretary, Violet Reynolds, told me, so Madam Walker had very little formal education, but she was a self-educated woman. She hired... Um, a woman named Alice Kelly, who was the dean of girls at a school called Eckstein Norton, a black school in Kentucky. And she had great leadership skills, but she hired Alice Kelly to be the manager of her factory, but she also really hired her as a personal tutor. But she was always improving. She really believed in lifelong learning so that when she was in and whenever she was in Indianapolis, because she was traveling so much, but on those days when she was in, in, in Indianapolis, she would gather the young ladies who worked in her office and have a meeting with them and talk to them about her travels and tell stories. But she also would read the newspaper with them. They would read the newspaper together. And some of the girls had some education, some had more than others, but everybody wanted to learn. And if somebody in reading the newspaper discovered a word they didn't know, she would have them look it up together in the dictionary. 
And she said, there's no shame in not knowing. We all should be trying to improve ourselves. So 1910, when Madam Walker moves to Indianapolis, she's just really just on the cusp of breaking out. She's still, you know, making a few thousand dollars a year, which is more money than most, you know, even white businessmen in, in America are making at the time. But she's just really poised to become nationally known. And shortly after she moves to Indianapolis, there is a big push to build a new YMCA in the black community. Her, she has become, Madam Walker becomes friends with George Knox, the publisher of the Indianapolis Freeman, the paper that has done so much to improve her uh, advertisements and to raise her profile. George Knox is the chairman of the board of the Black YMCA. And Madam Walker is very impressed with what he does. And shortly after Madam Walker arrives in Indianapolis, this big push to build a YMCA is led by George Knox. He invites Jesse Moreland, one of the first black secretaries of the YMCA, to come to Indianapolis to do what he has done in many other cities, which is to uh, hold a big rally to raise money. Uh, and he has persuaded Julius Rosenwald, the uh, president of Sears Roebuck, to pledge $25,000 to any city in America where the black and white communities will work together to raise the balance of $75,000 to build a $100,000 building. So Jesse Moreland comes to Indianapolis and holds a rally, brings together the leadership of the black YMCA and the leadership of the white YMCA and some of the wealthy white businessmen uh, who are at Eli Lilly and at the Indianapolis 500 Speedway racetrack stand up during the rally and they pledge $1,000, $5,000, $10,000 to this effort to build this YMCA. Now, understanding that YMCAs are still racially segregated in 1910, but this was going to be something that would help the black community. So Madam Walker, to everyone's surprise, stood up and said, I pledge $1,000. And I'm doing this because I believe if I help our boys, it will help our girls. And that is what I am interested in. Now, people were stunned. No black woman had ever contributed that amount of money to that kind of secular cause. And she began to be written about in newspapers, not just black newspapers, but white newspapers. People wanted to know the secret to her success. And they were writing about not just her business, but they were writing about her philanthropy. And eventually the, the YMCA was built. But Madam Walker, in the meantime, realized that people wanted to hear her story. And so her crowds began to get larger. She traveled from town to town to sell her products. And she decided during the summer of 1912 that she wanted to attend the National Negro Business League Convention. That organization had been founded by Booker T. Washington who was the most powerful black man in America. He had had dinner at the White House with Theodore Roosevelt. That was quite controversial because segregation was still a very much a part of the ethos of America. Madam Walker arrived at the 1912 National Negro Business League Convention 
uh, and sent word to Booker T. Washington that she wished to tell her story. She wanted to be included on the program. And she had met Booker T. Washington before, but he had been relatively dismissive of her. He had pretty much ignored her. But she was not a woman who wanted to be ignored. So on the first day of the convention, she asked politely about speaking, and he overlooked her. And on the second day of the convention, her good friend George Knox, the publisher of the Indianapolis Freeman, stood up and said, we should hear from Madam C.J. Walker. She is the woman who gave $1,000 to the building fund of the YMCA in my hometown of Indianapolis. She has an incredible story to tell. And even though Knox was a longtime member of the National Negro Business League and a good friend of Booker T. Washington's, he dismissed George Knox. And Booker T. Washington said, you know, we're discussing lifetime membership. But rather than call on somebody to discuss lifetime membership, he called upon one of Madam Walker's neighbors from Indianapolis, a man named H.L. Saunders. And Mr. Saunders proceeded to talk about his business. Now, he was very successful, and his business was now a regional business with customers in Indiana and the four surrounding states. At this point, Madam Walker, just six years after she had started the Madam C.J. Walker Manufacturing Company, had customers all over the United States, the Caribbean, and Central America. As it turns out, Mr. Saunders had been the treasurer for the fundraising campaign for the YMCA. Uh, and he had given the very generous sum of $250. But Madam Walker, of course, had given four times as much, $1,000. Now, I know she was a good church-going woman and she knew that you weren't supposed to compare what you put into the collection basket to what others put in. However, I can't help but imagine that she felt at least a twinge of resentment. And on the third and final day of the conference, as the last banker was completing his report, she stood at her seat, looked toward Booker T. Washington at the podium and said, surely you are not going to shut the door in my face. I am a woman who came from the cotton fields of the South. From there, I was promoted to the washtub. From there, I was promoted to the kitchen. And from there, I promoted myself. I promoted myself into the business of manufacturing hair goods and preparations. And I have built my own factory on my own ground. The next year, he invited her back as a keynote speaker. So Madam Walker was a person who had worked hard all her life. And she said, when she was a washerwoman, she said, when I was, when I was a washerwoman, I was an excellent washerwoman. I, I took pride in my work. I always took pride in my work, and I always knew that hard work was important. But when people would ask her the secret to her success, she would say to them, there is no royal flower-strewn path to success. And if there is, I have not found it. For whatever success I have attained has been the result of much hard work and many sleepless nights. I got my start by giving myself a start. So don't sit down and wait for the opportunities to come. You have to get up and make them for yourself. 
You know, she became very wealthy, and it was uh, really an American rags to riches story. She had been born on a plantation in Delta, Louisiana, one of the poorest areas in America, an area that had been devastated during the Civil War, and she was on a cotton plantation making no money. So, and orphaned at an, a very early age, very little education, and yet by the time she died, in May of 1919, she was living in a mansion in one of the wealthiest communities in America, just a few miles away from John D. Rockefeller. She had, during those 51 years, gone from an uneducated washerwoman to a millionaire. And great job on that, Faith, and thanks again to Alelia Bundles for narrating and telling this remarkable story of her great-great-grandmother, and that's Madam C.J. Walker. And what a story that was her donation to the YMCA. It just, that $1,000, what it meant to her, what it meant to her life to be able to be a woman and an African-American woman and do that. I got my start by giving myself a start. And whatever success I've had has been the result of much hard work and many sleepless nights. And no finer words can be said about anyone who wants to go down the road of entrepreneurship and cutting your own path. And what a terrific story. Again, send your stories to ouramericannetwork.org about your people, your family, somebody in your family like Madam C.J. Walker. This is Our American Stories, Madam C.J. Walker's story and her great-great-granddaughter, Alelia Bundle.